July, August of last year, there was a concerted effort to go after doctors for misinformation. And this happened all at once, a number of different medical organizations, all of which were nonprofit, supposedly nonprofit organizations, um, started issuing um, warnings to doctors that if you spread misinformation, you can be investigated, your license could be taken away, et cetera. Now I thought, well, that's interesting. I said, these are nonprofit organizations. None of them have regulatory authority. None of them can go after my license. Demystifying science. Welcome to Demystify Sci. Today we're going to explore one of the most important issues to us at this channel and in all of our enterprises, which is the policing of misinformation, particularly how it's played out in the last few years. We see the policing of misinformation as making the fundamental mistake that there is one institution or one person who has ultimate truth in their hands. And we see science as a living pursuit of truth, but something which is never capable of actually touching that limit. And so it's absolutely necessary that there remain a, a vibrant and heated dialogue about what is happening in nature at any given moment. Therefore, the policing of misinformation is directly in opposition to the progress of science. We're really excited to have Dr. Meryl Nass on the show with us today. She has had some very close encounters with these ideas. To start with, could you tell us a little bit about what happened in Zimbabwe? Zimbabwe had been a, a colony of uh, Great Britain. This is it was Rhodesia at the time. It was Rhodesia, right? Exactly, named after Cecil Rhodes, and uh, there was a northern and southern Rhodesia actually, and and northern became Zambia. Um, and in the 1960s, the African colonies were being given majority rule. So. The European nations that managed most of Africa were giving this up. But in Rhodesia, a very small white minority led by Ian Smith decided to sort of seize power rather than let it go to, to the Blacks. And that led to a very sort of slow-moving 15-year guerrilla war, um, and which basically was settled with agreements um, around 1980 and 81. But that war involved a lot of nasty things. So there, there were false flag operations. So they, the white government actually killed white farmers to blame it on the blacks. Um, and there was some chemical and biological warfare agents, several of each used during that war, and they are, we don't know exactly who used them. We do know that South Africa had its own biological warfare program, and we know that Rhodesia also began developing one during this protracted war. Um, and several so of those agents have been confirmed, from what I understand, right? Like things like cholera and, and, uh, well, depending, yeah, depending, hysteria. Right. Mm -hmm. So in the literature that I read, yes, they were confirmed. Some people admitted spreading certain things like cholera in rivers, you know, as long as it's not a fast moving, you know, 
huge river, if you put it in a small water supply, you can spread cholera, hepatitis, and things like that. Um, but the use of anthrax was deemed a slightly less, uh, how would you say, uh, there was more disagreement as to whether anthrax was used. So there, there was, yeah. Um, I guess in some ways, in terms of the world, biological warfare is considered a dirtier form of warfare. It's also used in order to in order to provide plausible deniability. So you want your use of it to look like a natural epidemic. So. Um, there was no major admission at the end of the war. Yes, we used anthrax, although there were one or two people who admitted they they had been aware of white people who had fought on the other side were aware of its use. Um, and I um, posit that it was used as a form of uh, food control, which was a, a program during the war where um, the white side tried to limit the the food availability to blacks. And so they could not share food with gorillas in the field. And uh, and what role did the anthrax play? In so that? anthrax was, I think it was intended actually to kill cattle primarily. And cattle was the main form of wealth of Africans who, who lived there. And um, so there were some untold number of cattle that died. And I think the people who caught anthrax or died, most of them got cutaneous anthrax from butchering the meat or from touching something. Um, there was really no inhalation anthrax and there was some gastrointestinal anthrax. So people ate meat that hadn't been cooked enough to kill the spores. Anthrax forms a spore. Um, like a like a fungus, which makes it very impermeable, which is why it's used as a biological agent. You can explode it from a bomb, and most bacteria would be killed if you did that. But in in a very um, you know resilient spore, it isn't. And then so it anthrax lands on the ground. If you inhale it while it's in the air, you might get inhalation anthrax, but Mainly, it's it then sits on the ground, and it's a problem for animals and not humans at that point. And so, what were the the sort of the information patterns that led you to see that something was was happening that wasn't the consensus narrative? Because were you what was your what was your role in studying this? Were you in grad school, or this was, this um, was... no? I was uh, I was finished. I I was I had been practicing medicine, you know, as a as a fully fledged doctor for a couple of years, and I went to a meeting. Uh, at uh, so I lived in Amherst, Massachusetts, where the University of Massachusetts is located. And it turned out that several uh, professors there had formerly worked at Fort Detrick, and at least one had contract had continuing contracts with the biological defense program of the Ar U.S. Army, and was studying anthrax. And he was supposedly his, his contracts were titled as studies into improved anthrax vaccine. The students at UMass were protesting this. They said, we don't want germ warfare at our university. And they asked uh, physicians for social responsibility that I was a member of to help them to understand what the research was about. And I was assigned that task. And when I read it, it turned out it wasn't studies, had had nothing to do with anthrax vaccines. And the professor had never worked on vaccines. It was really about um, moving plasmids around between different bacillus 
species, mostly anthrax species, but there are other cousins of anthrax. And they all make plasmids that have certain interesting features. And um, and to, to let people know who might not know about bacteria, plasmids are basically these circular pieces of DNA that are not the main genetic information inside of the bacteria. They're these mobile elements that carry oftentimes antibiotic resistance genes or or immune escape genes or just this useful information right. like toxin you said. genes mm -hmm. um, or other virulence factors um, in the case of anthrax and so uh, genetic engineering um, was only developed in the 1970s it was basically invented in 1973 and um, that was also right after the Biological Weapons Convention was written in 1972. At that point, it, it, when the Biological Weapons Convention was conceived of and then brought around the world for you know, over 100 signatories, um, the United States felt it would be good to get rid of biological warfare as a planet-wide program because there was no particular advantage to the United States that it was a um, that it was something almost anybody could do in their garage, for example, and so that poorer countries had a relative advantage. Um, so we encouraged getting rid of it. But as genetic and so this prof professor had been doing his studies since before the onset of genetic. So this was a primitive form of genetic engineering was moving the plasmids around and with the, with the goal of making it nastier essentially well this was in now i investigated this in 1989 and we were already uh, 14 years into the biological weapons convention so it was against the law to do those manipulations for offensive purposes so i can't tell you why he was doing them but he had a contract to do it that was titled with the wrong title that had the title of his grants uh, had nothing to do with the what is what he was actually doing. Um, and is I, this the first time that you got the sense that the United that that there was a different like some distance between the official narratives and those that yes. were yeah yes well I mean I had been you know a left winger I had marched against the Vietnam War so sure I was from a generation that knew that the United States wasn't necessarily a good guy in these things, but I didn't have, I hadn't done personal research until at this point. And, in, and so if you looked at the mission statement of this biological defense program that he was contracted with, you would find that it says they are not allowed to do offensive research. And they're very specific about what they can and can't do. And yet he was probably doing things that didn't really fit within their own definition. Um, but that's the I, case with gain of function pretty consistently across the board because, you know, the, the gain of function research is done in these laboratories until somebody notices and makes a fuss about it. And then the the argument is that, well, it's for further, like there was the gain of function research on making a hyper transmissible bird flu in ferrets. Right. And everybody was very, very upset about it when they learned about it. And the laboratories that were doing it basically defended it as being just, you know, in the name of science. But it's very hard to tease apart. Like, well, why would you do that in the name of science if there wasn't a larger interest that pushes you towards other uses of it? And it's circumstantial well, even evidence. Even definitely. if you're not going to be using it that way, 
Um, the thing is, there there are some laws. They're not the best laws, that, but we have. So this kind of research used to be called biological warfare research. And then this tre international treaty, which the United States instigated, went into effect in 1975. And so then uh, what was done at that point was called biodefense research. Mm. <laughs> and no one had... So they're basically idea. giving themselves the opportunity to police everybody else, but, yes. you know, continued yes. business as usual. The, the inspections and the sanctions were never added to the treaty. They were supposed, so there was a goal to get this treaty done in a hurry. And the plan was that every five or six years, we'll have a review conference and we will add the ways we're going to do inspections. This was before the chemical weapons convention, you see, which had the, which really includes the inspections. So there wasn't that precedent to use. Um, and in my work, I have noticed that the United States has actually gotten in the way of um, adding those provisions, the inspections, um, even though most of the rest of the world has wanted to do that. In any event... Um, Although they're quite useful at, uh, at instigating a war a little bit down the line from there, right? Yeah. Weapons of mass destruction. Um, well, yes. I mean, we supplied the Iraq Atomic Energy Agency with anthrax, for example, with a strain of anthrax that the United States stockpiled during World War II as a potential agent to use against Germany. Um, so you're, you're at this university, you get involved in- I actually in was not, I lived down the street from the university, but I wasn't, well, let me, let me take that back. I was a very part-time um, uh, lecturer, what, whatever you call it, you know, um, uh, uh, very uh, paid a few bucks to teach medical students at mm -hmm. the University of Massachusetts. But no, I worked in privately at a hospital. I see. And so you're working privately, but you are in this group, which is physicians for, you said it was physicians Social for safety. Social responsibility. Social responsibility. And you start looking into this research, and it's the first time that you see that there's this clear mismatch between the messaging and what's actually happening on the scientific side. And then does that just kind of fade into the background until we come around to what happened the last two like, years? Did it get real for you at that point? Were people attacking you? Did you sense pushback against discussing alternatives to the standard narrative? Or when when did it start to get real? Was it not until yeah? No, um, not at that point. So at that point, the bulk of people were against biological warfare. Now I lived in Amherst, which is a college town. So you've got lots of academics and in those, you know, a lefty liberal town, no, um, what was it? A nuclear free zone. And it became a bio, as a result of all of this, the, the town was involved. We had town meetings and it became a biological warfare free zone as well. Um, so, uh, but as a result of looking into all of this and and realizing that that the, you know things were dark and there weren't a lot of people talking about what was really happening, you know, we knew what was supposed to happen. I decided I would look at the last fifteen years of anthrax outbreaks, epidemics, epizootics in the world, and just see what they looked like, just for hahas, you know. Let's see, has anyone because. Really, in, in medicine, you never see an anthrax. I've never seen an anthrax case. 
there were only about one a decade when I started doing this and diagnosed in the United States. It's a disease of animals, and it's not common in animals either. And, and uh, so I looked at the last 15 years, and I found you know, there were, I don't know, about 10 or a dozen of them. And the Rhodesian epidemic was completely different than all the others. So as a result of going to libraries and really, you know, painstakingly looking at the characteristics of natural anthrax and then comparing Zimbabwe, Rhodesia's, I was able to, after a lot of time, it, three, it took me three years to get it all done, um, show that it was not, couldn't possibly be natural. And the there were, had been cover stories for the Rhodesian outbreak, that it had been due to flies, that it had been due to people carrying infected meat from one place to the other and spreading it to the other place, whereas that doesn't really make sense because it doesn't spread person to person. And, and, and if I might just add, I think I read that it only affected the uh, black farmers, right? That's right. And so it's right. kind of hard to imagine how you would, how that this could even be possible, even uh, the way that the town is laid out and so forth. It doesn't make sense. Well, it, now you could um, explain it because Rhodesia, like South Africa, had, um, what was it called? A apartheid. So there were regions of Rhodesia that were reserved for only black habitation and others that were reserved for white. So you could spread the anthrax in these black farmlands. What were the characteristics of the epidemic that led you to conclude that it was intentional rather than natural? Um, well, I haven't read my paper in years, <laughs> but um, I'll, what I hear, here's what I remember. So first of all, there were several different kinds of flies that were um, that it was attributed to, and I studied the flies and I talked to some fly experts and um, looked into how how much blood it takes a lot of anthrax to cause an infection. So in, in a cow, it might take a million spores, for example, you know, to overwhelm your immunity, your immune system. So in humans, it probably took. Over a hundred thousand spores. And that's wild. That's a, that's a that's a crazy high number, right? So you would have to get a Herculean mosquito or deer fly or whatever to be able to, you know, inject you with enough blood while they're trying to suck your blood to give you that kind. So that was one of the issues. Um, anthrax in nature occurs when you have very unique um, weather conditions. It only it, so it, it anthrax's reservoir is the soil, and it'll stay in a spore form. And when you get these special weather conditions, it will germinate and probably increase in number in the soil. Um, Basically, need a lot of evaporation. It seems like, and um, so it needs some nourishment in the soil. It also needs to outcompete the other microorganisms in the soil. And so you want weird weather conditions that kill off a lot of the other things. At least some of this is my take and some of this is proven. And so, for example, in, in Texas, in the, so there was a cattle trail from Texas up to, say, North Dakota in the United States. And along there, when cattle would die from anthrax, they would you know, leave the body there. And so there's a reservoir of anthrax in that soil. And then every 10, 20, 50 years, all of a sudden something happens and cattle are moving along that trail and they will graze and they will 
get anthrax from their grazing. And all of a sudden, you're going to have a point source outbreak of anthrax in animals in a localized area. Usually it's a drought or a flood that has, has done this. It's, it's interesting. Um, so they didn't have those special weather conditions in Zimbabwe. It also respected the borders of, of Rhodesia. And, um, and it's hard to imagine the flies respecting borders. That, that's yeah. a, that's a, <laughs> um, there, there were other hypotheses. One was that they didn't have the, the veterinary care in the black areas that they normally had. That's true. But that really didn't account for the extent of, I mean, this is a massive, for cattle, it was massive. And for humans, there were thousands of cases. Um, most of which were cutaneous. So, and is, it, and is a cutaneous case of anthrax fatal as well as an inhalation case, or is it less only, fatal? Only if it becomes systemic. I only see. if you get septic from it, which is unusual, very unusual. So this was uh, this was an e- this was an economic war, which is to control I through think the it food was supply. An economic war. There I were, see. But I mean, there were other agents. There were like uh, nerve gas um, used on clothing intended for black people. And so there was some degree of population control or, um, well, we think blue jeans and underwear in these stores in the black areas are likely to go to the gorillas. So we're gonna poison them, even though they may not go to the gorillas, they may go to regular people. So that also was an allegation. Um, In any event, it turned out that scientists at Fort D- U.S. Fort Detrick had a few years earlier performed an experiment with flies, in which they put flies on the, you know, you know, the, the body of animals that they had infected with anthrax to see if they could transmit anthrax with flies, and by dint of very, you know, hard work, (laughs) they were able to minimally transmit, but only to very small animals like mice or guinea pigs. Well, and they published that. And that was a justification for why this Zimbabwe epidemic had occurred via flies. Of course, in my paper, I said, well, that's, that's all very well. You might only need a hundred spores to infect a mouse, but if you need a hundred thousand spores, to infect a human, you know, or a million to affect a cow, you're not going to get it with those, with that fly. (laughs) You need an awful lot of flies carrying the anthrax to, um, anyway, but, but it was of interest to me that um, Fort Dietrich got involved in doing this. Maybe they were only doing it out of interest to see if flies could infect, or maybe they were doing it um, to provide misinformation. I can't tell you that. There was something even more interesting. Medical textbooks after the Rhodesian outbreak changed and started to say that flies could transmit anthrax. They, they've they've said after my paper was published, I don't know how many years it took because I published it thirty years ago. Um, now they don't say that anymore. I just want to add to if they were doing it intentionally to disinform people, I guess it would be more appropriate for us to call it disinformation in that case, because yes. it seems like misinformation is just 
this idea of something that doesn't conform to the narrative. So the disinfor- the different I've spent a lot of time looking this up. Misinformation is listed as something that is false, but is transmitted accidentally or unknowingly. False according to whoever's the narrative bearer. Right, whoever has decided where where truth with the a deciders. capital T. Yes, yeah. the deciders have decided that it is it is false, and so is transmitted unwittingly. So it's accidental disinformation is false according to the same narrative, but transmitted with intention to deceive. Hey, I have a new one for you. The Department of Homeland Security has a neologism called malinformation. Oh, boy. Mm. What's the, do you, do you know the and, definition? Well, that's a real, really intent to deceive. <laughs> this is like from a foreign government or something? It's only the French. Government. Department of Homeland Security. Oh, yeah, but I'm wondering who, who is capable of malinformation. It must be a, oh, a, a very right. powerful oh, actor. No. They, no, they were concerned, actually, about um, uh, domestic actors spreading malinformation about the pandemic. Well, that, and th- so malinformation, I think, uh, cleaves to what's called an info hazard, which is the idea that if you give people information that is outside the consensus model, that they begin to question the consensus model and therefore create tension in the society and that is undesirable because you have to have you hear all these people talking about how it's necessary to have a society that all believes in the same things because that's what creates a stable society like i was listening to we're doing a movie right now about the importance of misinformation in science and I was listening to uh, Barack Obama talked at like the Stanford Cyber Defense Conference just two days ago. And the guy is basically going through and he's talking about the fact that what you have to have is you have to have a stable society that gets their information from a concerted source. And that is what gives people the ability to trust one another because there's not all these different narratives out there that are competing for attention. And it's terrifying to listen to because I can understand why governments would want that. You know, I mean, Obama certainly, uh, there are questions whether his family worked for the CIA and whether he may have, but Certainly sounds like a spook at this point in time. (laughs) He doesn't even look like he believed in it. It's just like you see this graying old man up there on stage just kind of reading a script with no passion. You can tell he's reading, too, in a way that you never could before. Ah, he hasn't practiced. (laughs) He's just like... He wasn't paid enough for that. (laughs) Exactly. Um, The Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, said the same thing in a very 1984-ish manner. And she said this at the beginning of the pandemic. She said, we will be your sole source of truth. You well, know, ignore everything else. We will tell you as much as we can. <laughs> Thank you, Jacinda. I appreciate it. As much as you can. Right. And so there's basically this, this desire this to... This must be coming from one place, Right. So Obama got his speech from the same place Jacinda got hers. And we know she was a World Economic Forum uh, young global leader. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I think that the, the, the case for the centralized source of it is, is harder to make because there's also this idea of the mind virus, too, right? Where it's like when somebody says something and they're part of some organization and somebody else is... There's the same speech writer is probably writing all of the speeches. 
And so if the same person is writing all of the speeches or it's a group of people who are writing all of the speeches, then you can imagine that it kind of disseminates centrally from outwards. And it's a um, it's a networking thing. That there are certain, it's not the same speechwriter, but the same mems, you know, the same bullet mm. points. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Being shared around. And you see that, right? The vaccine is safe and effective. Misinformation is killing people. Um, the, 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 the fact that we need to fight against misinformation, the fact that misinformation is this huge problem. These are ideas that constantly show up over and over again. So there's definitely a concerted effort to push towards this. And the answer is to create a single stream of information so that you have a cohesive cultural narrative for people to believe in. Yes. Which is surprisingly anti-American because yeah. our founding fathers were very keen on the idea of a free press that was able to give they, they were very 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 aware of the idea that you can't have a democracy without everybody being able to take in the informational landscape and make their decisions appropriately if you don't have uh, decentralized decision making you can't have a, st- a functional democracy you just you, you end up in some tyranny or another so it's it's very surprising i would have never thought we would be in this position when i was a kid i would be like well maybe with you'd see this kind of thing the policing of information in china or or uh, Russia or something, but not in the United States, but here we are. I, I think and, that and so a, few people understand that we have a constitution that forbids it. And right. the constitution is the foundation of all U.S. law, and it's our first amendment. For good and reason. And they are willing to junk it, which indicates that they were never taught you know, much in school about the basis of, of law. Since it's such a fundamental principle. But I just I, think I also, they think they're smarter than the law. I don't necessarily think that they're smarter than the law. I, I just listening listening to Obama go on and on about this idea of the way that people got their information from just these few concerted sources, it, it I think that what it is is that it's always been going on. Information control is the status quo. I think that there has always been the desire to control the narrative and it was just very effective. And so it, they were able to control the narrative without ever having to come out in the open and be like, we're controlling the narrative. Cause you can read, there was a really fascinating uh, interview with Gloria Steinem where she was talking about being a CIA asset. And she was just like, I wasn't really wor- I mean, it wasn't like I was going into the CIA office. They just supported me and they paid me and they encouraged my ideas. And yeah. so information control is a baseline thing that has always been happening in the background. And now it's just become very hard for them to clamp down on the information because it's so, well, right. <laughs> you, you, no, you- I, I, I agree and disagree. I'm a lot older than you. Mm. Um, there has always in my lifetime been attempts to present a unifying narrative, but there were not six companies that own 90% of the mass media before. And, and so, yes, you had Project Mockingbird, the CIA paid for hundreds of journalists, said, you know, paid for, they're still paying for movies and other things. Um, but the government directly paying the media in the open that is something new, I think. Uh, certainly a billion dollars is something new. Um, Did the government the, open... Sorry, what was what is this in reference to? I, I don't think I know. Well, appar- apparently, the U.S. government and other governments, ca- Canada, for instance, there's at least 300 million that has been paid directly as sort of like the payment protection program, you know, that government has paid 
as a gift to media companies. And um, with pharma being the number, having the highest profit margins of any industry, pharma advertises uh, uh, on TV more than any other industry. And, and sponsor segments in, too. Pardon, and sponsor segments and then news. But they don't only do that as advertising. They do that so that they, so that the media cannot afford to lose them. So the media cannot antagonize them. You know, if they went from ABC to CBS, you're right, ABC would, would die, would go away. So we, we have created, you know, we, ha we always had a nightmare, but now it's a nightmare you never wake up from. And, you, you know, those um, other, the, the smaller media, for instance, you know, my uh, friend, uh, Michelle Chosodovsky, who is the editor at Global Research, in, in Montreal, Canada, and there's a wonderful left-wing, usually left-wing, now it's very mixed, uh, website with lots of astute um, analysis of situations in the world. He is being attacked electronically, you know, with, uh, you know, server problems and getting millions and millions of attacks from foreign countries. And so that website has 100,000 articles on it. And so this sort of the level of information warfare has never been seen before in my lifetime. Back to, I want to go back to where it got started to get personal for you in terms of the, uh, your, your brush with information policing and, uh, yeah, we were at the point where the researchers at Fort Detrick were perhaps were infecting guinea pigs and mice with flies carrying anthrax. And then that could have been used either as, you know, misinformation or disinformation for the Zimbabwe outbreak. But where do you, where do you right. go next? So, so Zimbabwe was a, before I came along, Zimbabwe's outbreak was attributed to natural causes. And um, it was written up in a local journal. There were only two libraries in the whole United States that carried that journal, the Central African Journal of Medicine. And, you know, I had to, you know, pay for copies to be made and shipped to me from one of those. So, you, you know, you couldn't do research on this topic unless you really went out of your way to do it. And um, I did. And then I went to Zimbabwe and I got, and Zimbabwe also was interesting because having been, and it was sort of a British territory through those 15 years, it wasn't really, but they still had the British system in place. Unlike most of Africa, they were still collecting data. They had numbers of cases of anthrax, you know, in different territories at different times. And um, so one could more easily track what was going on because of it, uh, still using these British systems. Um, so as I, while I was doing the Rhodesian Zimbabwe research, I sent Freedom of Information Act requests to the CIA and the State Department and other organizations. And I also gave a, a poster on it at the, an international, the big International Infectious Disease Conference in 1992, which was held in um, Nairobi, Kenya. And a woman came and screamed at me there, who turned out, Margareta Isaacson, she's deceased, um, turned out she was probably one of the biological warfare researchers in South Africa. I'm, I'm almost certain of that. And um, 
So she didn't she didn't want this to be known. I was surprised that she What was she angry about ostensibly or like you know, this, uh, outwardly? This is rubbish. Your work is rubbish, you know. This is it shouldn't be blah blah blah. blah. And, Did she think it was a threat to something or you know, was there any like it was a threat to her work? Okay. But, okay. Um, Fair enough. <laughs> anyway, it was interesting because I presented this and black African doctors were also at this huge meeting, you know, probably thousands of people. And um, and they, unlike most of the white people who came by, you know, were very accepting of the fact that this is, yeah, this is something that can happen. And that's a different um, frame of reference, right? The people who would be experiencing it directly happening to them versus the person who is perhaps perpetrating it. There's the 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 reactions are are in and of themselves. They contain information. Yes. Um, when I got my FOIA request back from the CIA, included was a copy of my poster from that conference. Um, so somebody had sent it to the CIA or somebody was at the CIA conference? Just, they just collect stuff, you know, I don't know. Maybe they were at the conference too. In international infectious disease. I mean, obviously somebody in the United States is keeping track of that. Um, so it turned out that the... U.S. Embassy in Rhodesia was also keeping track of this epizootic as it occurred and sending, you know, reports back. So we were probably gaining information, even though I assume somebody else was conducting the field trial. Um, also, at that point, I had a couple of odd things happened. I um, I felt like my phone was tapped and. I got a letter in the mail from American Airlines um, giving me a free trip, a free round trip to basically anywhere in the world. And I thought, this is, this is good, but I'm not even a frequent flyer. And then I thought, wait a minute, do they want to get me out of the country and kill me? You know? So I gave the ticket to my sister who got a free trip to Japan. But um, I decided not to take it. <laughs> I think that's the definition of there's no such thing as a free lunch. <laughs> like something right. weird is going on. I want nothing to do with that. At at what point do you start to kind of to question the narrative of what's happening here? Is it does it take until COVID to get that to to really like spring into into reality or is it or there are other things before that you see and notice that kind of all coalesce into a complete picture in 2020? I I got involved with anthrax vaccine and um, th those mandates, and I worked with a large number, very large number of military people um, on that because it was the military that were mandated to receive this bad vaccine starting in 1998. And so my military friends told me that you would not believe how incompetent government agencies can be. And I certainly saw some of that with the anthrax vaccine program. And so I have, up until the pandemic, I generally be blamed all the failings of good governance and good regulation on either ignorance or vested interest, you know, conflicts of interest. But at the once the pandemic got going, 
um, particularly when I started looking into, well, I, once the pandemic got going in March of 2020, when I read the two papers in The Lancet and in Nature Medicine, I immediately spotted them as propaganda. And I thought, you know, these papers would not have been published, especially the Nature Medicine paper, which didn't make any sense. This is about the origins of, yes, of the, the origins. virus? Right. These papers would not be published in a reputable journal. Otherwise, we thought reputable journals, unless there was, you know, a force causing them to be published. And so I thought, okay. Then I had said earlier that the lab origin was likely, that a lab escape was likely. At this point in time, I'm thinking this was probably deliberate. But it became obvious to me at that point that, yes, this was made in a lab for sure. Um, and then by May, I started investigating the suppression of hydroxychloroquine and published a pretty important paper about over 50 ways hydroxychloroquine, the use of it for COVID was being suppressed around the world and realized that there's no way one government, one entity did this. I mean, th this is massive. You know, most of Europe, um, much of Asia was uh, collaborating in the suppression of useful drugs for COVID. Now, how does that make sense? It only makes sense when you entertain the possibility of some massive, you know, takeover. Some the amount, the way I came at it was, okay, all these countries, all these different leaders here in the United States, many state governments, you know, many, many different entities, including manufacturers, pharmacy chains, and others participated in the suppression. And I thought, how much would it cost to get all these different entities to do something that is working against their own people? You know, and I thought, this is, this is an expensive program. We're talking billions and billions of dollars to, to make this happen. And you have to gain control of so many people all at the same time. You know, how, wow. I mean, it seems incredible, but that's the only way to explain it. And um, so, so I had no, no doubt in my mind that something extremely nefarious was happening. I don't know who is in charge. I don't know what the all the levers are, but I know that this, um, whatever it is, has managed to um, gain authority over many world leaders. Let's and back. To, yeah, can we go back to chloroquine? Yeah. Can we oh, can we get back to chloroquine though? Because I don't think uh, uh, first yeah it'll be interesting to see if we get thrown off of this platform for talking about chloroquine. But uh, chloroquine's a pretty innocuous drug in general, right? It's been used for I don't know how many decades in all sorts of uh, diseases. Malaria, right? I personally worked on it in a lab at one point as a treatment for brain tumors, um, but it's it's relatively uh, safe in the doses at which it's so prescribed. Chloroquine is a derivative of the of cinchona bark, which was chewed for malaria for hundreds of years. And it's been licensed in the United States about as long as I've been alive. And I took it when I was in Africa. I spent six months in Africa when I was 20 and 21 and took it. And then I actually got malaria after I got home and took it again. Um, it so it's a drug that's had you know billions of doses around the world. It is also used 
well, so in those days, when I was in Africa in 1972, it was the main drug for malaria prophylaxis, not necessarily for treatment. And um, nowadays, hydroxychloroquine is felt to be a little bit safer. And so that has superseded it. And that's been licensed in the US for more than 40 years. Um, hydroxychloroquine is also used for certain several autoimmune diseases, primarily lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, but it's sometimes used in others. And I have used it in combination with a macrolid antibiotic for Lyme disease. It's actually a pretty good treatment in combination for Lyme disease. It may always work in the same way, which is to, I think, acidify um, uh, certain organelles. I can't remember which ones. In any event, so I had, I've used it on 100 to 200 at least patients. So COVID comes around, you, you see some evidence for its efficacy and you think, well, here's a relatively right. so safe drug I've used a bunch. Said, and... Right. The end of February of 2020, the Chinese were doing 20 clinical trials on chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. Because it should be said that the, the outcome of COVID that kills is not the viral replication. The outcome is the inflammation. And so when you have, when you go through, and this is something that we, we've, we've discovered over and over again, because we've been teaching this immunology of COVID class, and a lot of people treat COVID as the, the, the virion itself as the agent that causes the damage. But what it is, is that it's the immune system that is ravaging the body in the aftermath of viral clearance, which is what severe COVID and lethal COVID is. And so a drug that treats inflammation, you hear people all the time where they're like, I don't understand what the mechanism of action of something like ivermectin could be. Maybe it's, you know, it's, it deworms people because it's a dewormer. But well, the mechanism... Because people are stupid because they don't realize drugs can have very many mechanisms of action and that for many drugs, um, no one has identified the mechanism of action. <laughs> Which is a whole other conversation. From uh, licensing these drugs. And FDA has not required the manufacturers to disclose the mechanism of action, which is really bizarre. But ivermectin is alleged to have maybe 20 different mechanisms of action against the... And, uh, and what's bizarre for both of them in this case is that the information channels were adamant that they were not only ineffective, but they were dangerous, right? There was right. this, so this right. So there was this subversion that was a lie of that because I had used so much. So chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, they have a narrow therapeutic to toxic window. Um, if you take four times the, the the recommended dose, there's a potential for life threatening toxicity due to cardiac arrhythmias. Now there are many drugs. There's at least fifty or hundred different licensed drugs that can also cause cardiac arrhythmias the same way. Isn't but, the like lethal dose of Tylenol something only like two times the what's printed no, on the bottle? No, you have to really drink a bottle of Tylenol. I mean, it depends on the person, depends on your, your pre-existing liver condition, right? How good your liver is at detoxing. And if you take glutathione or an acetylcysteine, you will be able to detox it and you can survive a whole lot more. Um, but anyway, for, Chloroquine is, in fact, a drug that has a relatively low dose for a potentially toxic. It can also cause um, hypo, um, hypoglycemia. So you, you can 
you know, get a low blood sugar, which makes you confused or agitated or weak, dizzy. Um, it can cause psychiatric changes. So it, it has some problems if you give too much, but if you give the normal amount and it's sold over the counter, it was sold over the counter in most of the world. I, all the chloroquine I've ever taken myself was over the counter. So um, it, it was ridiculous for the United States and the WHO to claim that this drug is okay for all its other conditions. Go ahead and keep taking it for malaria, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, but don't you dare take it for COVID. It's dangerous for COVID. Now, that doesn't make sense, especially if you're not on any other drugs that it will, you know, exacerbate. So if you're on... Multiple, especially when there's so few drugs, if any, other COVID. than steroids exactly. for COVID, right, that show any... Even the steroids one are, like, questionable. And the steroids are not antiviral. So so chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, and ivermectin actually kill virus. Um, and they, if you take them early enough, they prevent the virus from... Uh, reproducing enough inside your body to cause these downstream inflammatory effects that involve thrombosis, um, cytokine storm, and other, and potentially organ damage and, and uh, collapse. Well, it's hard to look at what's happened over the course of the last two years and not feel like it was imperative to maintain a narrative that vaccination was the only way out not only was vaccination the only way out, but that the the virus itself was extraordinarily dangerous to anyone who was going to come into contact with it, because that's what created the the desire to get vaccinated. You'd hear people talking about it when, you know, everything was still shut down of I can't wait until the vaccine lets everything get back to normal. Right. And, and you and I don't watch TV, but apparently that was on TV constantly. And um it made it into regular discussion too with just right. you well, know different universities you know were co-opted their their social psychologists to come up with plans for how to nudge people and in, in the UK you know they had the spy b um subcommittee of sage their strategic advisory committee of experts um to tell the government what um, measures to use to basically, you you know, mind control the populace and get them to comply with the government's measures. Now, we must have had something like that here, but nobody's written a book that talks about it. But Laura Dodsworth wrote such a book. It was published last May in the UK. It was covered in the Telegraph. And so we know how that organization operated. And the People who were who she interviewed, who worked for Spybe, admitted they were doing mind control. Um, it's interesting that the UK government has just recently sort of dismissed the whole Sage committee, well, the whole Sage operation. It's either gone underground or it's gone for some reason, probably before they could be investigated. So just to bring everybody up to speed, the idea being that chloroquine, ivermectin, some of these other treatments are not really profitable in the sense of a novel therapeutic. They're old drugs. Um, they don't have the same kind of margins available to the industry. And so by making the public focused on a monolithic option, this new technology vaccine, uh, you 
well, by shutting out all of the other treatments, you can authorize this expedited arrival of this new technology. Because everybody agrees that you have to get back to normal because things are abnormal and you can't go out and you want to be able to participate and people are economically struggling. So this is like an economic argument, like a, I don't want to say an economic conspiracy theory, but... It's an economic incentive. You basically, yeah. you take you take away what people need to be able to thrive. And then you're like, well, you can only go back to it if you take this medicine, which is experimental, but we promise you that it's and safe and effective. And safe and effective was, was definitely some kind of ta- tag word that they decided in a room because... That was what everybody said over and over again. Like that one's a hundred percent. Somebody, somebody handed that out memetically. I mean, that that actually is an old mem for vaccines in general. So safe and effective has been used forever. And um, what's missing is because the Supreme court has said vaccines are unavoidably unsafe. The question is always how safe and how effective. Yeah. I mean, even the CDC website is basically, I remember early in the pandemic, they had on their vaccination page, they were like, nothing is 100% safe or 100% effective. And so it seems like this kind of acknowledgement of the fact that, you know, they couldn't actually promise 100% safety because you you have to have cover your ass legal language, right? Because if if they promise 100% safety, but there's even a single person that has an adverse event, that opens them up to liability. I, my my question, okay, so I want to, I, I have kind of a structural question about this, which is that, and I'm not necessarily certain that you have the answers for it or that anybody has the answers for it, but why was it that Pfizer and Moderna were the ones that got the emergency use authorization? There were other companies that were working on mRNA vaccines. Okay, so... Science Magazine had an article and an interview with Mansaf Slawi, who was the co-director of Operation Warp Speed. And at that time, I can't remember the date, but at that point, he said there were going to be eight, eight vaccine contenders. And there would, there would be two for each of four technologies. And mRNA was one technology and the adenovirus vector was another. So there's supposed to be two additional technologies coming forward and the government was going to put a lot of money into all of these and then and start the manufacturing even before anybody knew which ones were um, authorized by the FDA and yet we're, we're left with three vaccines you know in the United States two three have been authorized and two actually were given licenses but you can't find the licensed product in the United States you can only find the those are the Moderna and the, and the Pfizer were licensed for adults. They have for um, ages 16 and up for Pfizer and 18 and up for Moderna. They have, they're still under EUA for children. The Pfizer is, and Moderna has not gotten an EUA for children yet. They are applying for one, they say soon. But you were saying that you can't, you said that there are two that have gotten licensed, but you can't find the, the product. Yeah. So the, the, Moderna's um, brand name is SpikeVax. If you go to a store and say you want a vaccine with SpikeVax, you won't get one. You'll get one with a number on it, like 1273 or something like that. And you, that's under EUA. EU, under EUA, um, it's, not li- it's not a licensed product. It, it has not met the standard of safe and effective. 
I said they granted the full authorization in February of this year. I only know Those that. The no, no, that's that was sorry. FDA has its own language. I see. So okay. FDA language is authorization means emergency use authorization, and approval means license. Okay, so it was so the spike vax was licensed in February. And it was given an EUA on December 17 or 18 of 2020. Okay. So I, 13, 14, 15 months, 14 months went by. And now SpikeVex has uh, the approval as a license, but you can only find the EUA product here. And probably the reason for that is that the EUA has a huge um, umbrella liability umbrella over it that the licensed product does not have. Like the actual vials that you're going to end up getting stuck with. Vial. So, so FDA gave, and FDA gave Pfizer a license on August 23rd of 2021. You can't find any of the, the Pfizer licensed product um, label says Comirnaty. You're not going to find any Comirnaty anywhere. Okay. You're just going to find, it'll say Bion, Pfizer BioNTech on the label. And um, so you, that bars you from filing a lawsuit against the manufacturers, against the government, against the doctors, against the building. It, you know, it's a massive. Yeah, we, I think we didn't mention that, but that's one thing that's really crazy about this emergency youth. I, I didn't mention it earlier is that these companies are indemnified. They, they will not be responsible for any damages that happen. Which is and the indemnification is broader than for any other product. How did Warp Speed select these eight pharma companies? I mean, I've uh, obviously Moderna and yeah. Pfizer have. So the one of the guys who owns Moderna was the chair of some FDA science committee. Uh, one of the guys who is, I think, on Pfizer's board is also from the FDA. So um, what's his name? I mentioned it today. Gottlieb. Scott Gottlieb was a former MD, uh, FDA commissioner under Trump, who then joined Pfizer's board after he left the FDA. And it was weird because he was Stephen only commissioner Hahn, for like two years. Stephen Hahn was the FDA commissioner after Scott for about a year. And he then left and went to work for a company, the company that owns Moderna. Interesting. Okay. All right. So that's, that's because I mean, I was talking to my brother about this yesterday and he was just, he was, he was curious about the, just the procedural aspects of why these companies got approved versus why not. And if approval requires only having somebody from the FDA on your board, why doesn't just every pharmaceutical company buy an FDA person? It seems like there's enough of them, right? Like, right. Exactly. Um, or a CDC person. So the former head of the CDC, Julie Gerberding, be left. She had to wait 12 months by law, and then she became the president of Merck Vaccines um, in 2010. Um, and she's still working for Merck. So um, what does it take to get licensed and what does it take to get an EUA? There are statutory standards, and then there are guidance documents that FDA issues that lists what its expectations are for industry. But all the guidance, every guidance document coming out of FDA says non-binding, so they give themselves a lot of leeway. But the 
standards were really not met for these products. We, and I suspect FDA knew what they were doing. Well, I'm not sure, but I think if somebody knew what they were doing because they only kept, they only collected data for the EUA for two months. There were a couple of odd things. The way the trial, clinical trial data was presented, they did not look carefully at the time between the first and second doses. They only started looking at efficacy two weeks after the second dose was given. And CDC used that same sort of time period to, to call people unvaccinated if they if anything happened to them before two weeks after the second dose, it happened in an unvaccinated person rather than a vaccinated person. And this would so, ostensibly cover up any like injuries from the, the So this would cover so. a lot of injuries that, that occur within two weeks of vaccination. Um, the Just other due thing, to the product itself. Right. So it turns out when you actually look at data that was collected throughout this period that for about two to three weeks after you get a vaccine, there is some immune incompetence that develops and people are more likely to suffer from endogenous recurrence of a viral infection like shingles. Um, so something happens and I think why, you know, certain lymphocytes go down and then they come back up. So we were not informed of that. All we, all we were told is we're starting to look at the data at two weeks. <clears throat> and I haven't seen that before. I don't remember ever viewing that in the my 24 year history looking at vaccines. And the other thing, so they, they kept people in the trial for a median of two months before providing FDA with the data for the emergency use authorization. Um, that ended on November 14th. The, the data collection ended November 14th of 2020, and the data were almost immediately presented to FDA, and FDA had to go through those data, and, and Pfizer and then FDA had to create all these diagrams and graphs to show the advisory committee and the public, and FDA did its presentation, and, and Pfizer also together in a day-long presentation on December 10 of 2020. So in slightly under four weeks, manufacturer and the FDA had to go through a mass of data and present it and issue the EUA. So that was a very, they never do that. I mean, it always takes FDA at least six months to go through this date, these data. Um, but I mean, it's clear that this is, this is an exceptional circumstance. And so whatever is, whatever it is that they're doing, it's accelerated because of the fact that there is this, this mindset of we need this as fast as humanly possible. So in circumstances where they've been pushing this for, you know, since March to December, you would expect that they would accelerate it because they have the entire public of the United States clamoring for a vaccine. And so everything comes together. I'm looking at the... Uh, the so wait a minute. Let me... So this has happened before. We, we had a vaccine in six months and it was the 1976 swine flu. And it was a very comparable situation where people were warned that we're going to have a recurrence of the 1918 swine flu or flu. Um, and in fact, there was no need for that vaccine because that the few cases they found of swine flu actually died out at Fort Dix, New Jersey, and it never propagated. But it, they, 
there were somewhere between 25 and 40 deaths. Um, and there were 400 cases of Guillain-Barre, I think, and a few thousand people applied to the government for benefits because in the middle of the process, the three manufacturers said our insurance won't insure us for this process that we're doing at warp speed for you. You've requested a warp speed vaccine. You'll have to indemnify us. And so they got a nice indemnity. <clears throat> and so then they went forward because once you get that indemnification, it doesn't matter to you whether your vaccine works or is safe because you're going to be paid anyway and no one can challenge you about it. <clears throat> as long as you don't know. <clears throat> Giving the indemnity incentivizes the manufacturer to not test the product because as long if you know there's a big problem, then you could be liable for fraud. But if you don't know, you you're not liable. So in the Prep Act, they own the liability. In order to become liable, you have to provide evidence of willful misconduct. And that's I mean that's a bar to clear that is almost you you'd have to be able to it's have never access. Been cleared. You'd have to have a whistleblower on the inside who has access to emails, and then you have to assume that the people who are writing the emails would be stupid enough to actually put it down on paper as opposed to talking <laughs> about it and exactly. not destroying the data. And so that's that's basically an impossible bar to clear. I I mean, my, my great concern about this is not that the... is, is that the, the way that the studies themselves were conducted are impossible to identify as being flawed because if you look at the at the pa the paper about the true. safety you know you cuz i mean i've i've read this paper about the safety of the of the Pfizer vaccine what is it BN2162B the new england journal of medicine paper yeah there's and i've read it multiple times and i'm like it's written in such a way where they do look what happens after dose 1 they are showing, you know, there's figure three shows. You can't just look at those papers. Those papers are written by, you know, medical education companies. That they're, they're written by misinformation companies. <laughs> and so what you have to do is you have to, what I do, what I've been doing since this pandemic started, <clears throat> is I watch most of the vaccine advisory committee meetings um, of the FDA. It's a one-day meeting. But um, the members often can, they, and they're showed, you know, much more raw data than usually goes into those New England Journal articles. And by the way, the um, editor-in-chief of the New England Journal is on that committee, um, which is interesting because Pfizer is paying them a lot of money to, for reprints, right? And advertise, because New England Journal is running all the Pfizer vaccine articles. <clears throat> So anyway, and that's you, that's because of a pay to publish system, right? Because no, no, the publication itself is free, but the manufacturer buys reprints for a good price to hand out to doctors to say read about my product. And so that's where the journals make most of their money. And so the guy who runs the New England Journal of Medicine is making money off of the very people that he should be Public monitoring refereeing yeah. yeah okay right and that's why and that may be why he said at one of those meetings he had the famous quote at the authorization meeting for five to 11 year olds you know we're not we don't know if it's safe we're not going to know if it's safe until we give it so let's vote for authorizing it let's just give it and we'll find out if it's safe that's wild 
And so, what do you what do you do to 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 stop this so from the, happening? The word the, so most of these documents were shrouded in mystery. <clears throat> a lot of stuff about the contracts was classified. I mean, we don't know how how these vaccines were selected, but it, they were a vanity project of Tony Fauci, and he probably had a great deal of control of what's going on. Um, I'm <clears throat> I've heard he select you know he was central in selecting Rochelle Walensky to run the CDC. So if that's true, he may be able to run the CDC as well. He may, <clears throat> there was only an acting commissioner of the FDA all of last year, and it was Janet Woodcock who had been the FDA liaison to the Warp Speed project. She, so she probably was able in her, as one of the highest people at FDA to, um, bypass normal FDA regulation. When you say, well, yeah, they were, they speeded it up. It would normally take six months, but it took only a month, but that's because we're in the middle of a pandemic. No, if you look at all vaccines, there've been a bunch that have been sped up like the swine flu. It was a mess. You know, you, you cannot do vaccine reg because nobody knows vaccines are are not like drugs where you can to some degree predict what's going to happen ahead of time you actually have to inject them into people you, like the editor-in-chief said you have to inject them into people because people are not like animals we're not like any of the lab animals even monkeys and you don't know what the side effects are going to be and you don't know how effective it's going to be until you actually use the product in a lot of people <clears throat> And that stuff just cannot, I mean, there've been too many disasters. They um, improperly uh, approved or authorized a vaccine, a Sanofi dengue vaccine in the Philippines a few years ago, and it killed a bunch of kids <clears throat> because it, it caused, again, some immune overdrive when the children were later infected with dengue. Um, and, and there were criminal charges filed against Sanofi officials and um, people in the health department in the Philippines because it was it was an improper, you know, as a conflicted um, approval. When did people start coming after you about the chloroquine? Was that uh, after you started writing about it or what, what happened? You know, it, I'm pretty careful, uh, maybe not as careful as I used to be because I'm trying to put out a lot more content than I ever did before. But um, I think partly because I'm a doctor, partly because I have this, you know, 30 year reputation and um, partly because I'm careful that I did not get much pushback until very recently, until the end of last year. Um, I see, I, Unlike most people who do podcasts, uh, you know, I don't just make assertions, but on my blog, I really try to link to all the evidence. I don't want people to assume that I'm what I'm saying is correct. Look it up, find out, you know, do what I did and see. Um, and so I have, you know, I have a great deal of um, support for my beliefs, my opinions. And um, so... I didn't get much pushback, but then, you know, as I became more well-known, I was working for Children's Health Defense. I was working with Bobby Kennedy, who is a real target of, of these uh, people who are going after misinformation. And then in August, July, August of last year, 
there was a concerted effort to go after doctors for misinformation. And this happened all at once, a number of different medical organizations, all of which were nonprofits, supposedly nonprofit organizations, um, started issuing um, warnings to doctors that if you spread misinformation, you can be investigated, your license could be taken away, et cetera. Now I thought, well, that's interesting. I said, these are nonprofit organizations. None of them have regulatory authority. None of them can go after my license, but they're threatening me. It's like, something's going, you know, they've been paid off. So they, something happened here that this is not in their ballpark. And turned out that uh, they pushed this out, especially an organization that normally provides training and support to medical boards. They pushed this out to 71 medical boards in the United States. And <clears throat> somewhere between 12 and 15 of them went along with it and started um, investigating doctors for misinformation if we did not spout the CDC NIH narrative. And I wrote, you know, I felt pretty strongly that this was a very bad, that this was a very bad precedent. And I was not going to be afraid. I'm old enough, you know, I don't need the money from my medical practice. I was doing it primarily to treat patients with COVID who don't have other doctors anymore who are willing to treat them because they're frightened of all this, or they've been told not to. And um, so I wrote to the medical board. I said, you know, how are you defining misinformation? And in fact, what is your statutory authority to go after doctors for misinformation? You know, their job is to protect the public from bad doctors. You know, most of their problematic doctors are using drugs or alcohol um, or have sexually, um, you know, been involved with patient and you know, they've, their job has never been to, to police what I say in a podcast, but somehow they took it upon, they had a particular relationship with this organization, the Federation of State Medical Boards, and they decided to take it on. Now, 56 or more of these medical boards didn't take it on. I, I like to say some of them probably read the First Amendment and knew what, their, what my constitutional rights are, but my medical board didn't. So, <clears throat> Do you think that you sort of got the, the attention of the medical board at that point? Like, do you think that's yeah, when... So it, it's interesting, you know, when did I get the attention of the medical board? The first complaint they produced was from somebody who used to hang around at Occupy Wall Street in Portland, Maine, and was alleged by friends of mine to have been a suspected informant. Um, in the documents I got from the board, it turned out that the pharmacy board had had a meeting and all these meetings have to follow the Administrative Procedures Act and they have a comment period for the public. And so I made a public comment you know, by Zoom at the pharmacy board meeting uh, in the fall saying that, that the veiled threats to suppress ivermectin were very bad, that they, they needed to put out a, a guidance saying doctors and other practitioners are, are free to prescribe these drugs, they're safe drugs, blah, blah, blah. Well, 
there was a state employee on the call because the, the boards are, you know, they're staffed by state employees. A state employee on that call wrote a synopsis of what I had to say and sent it to the medical board. Like I had done something wrong. And here I was at a public meeting doing my duty as a medical professional telling the board how to fix a problem. So those two things happened. And then suddenly um, two doctors, well, one was a, uh, actually a midwife, a nurse midwife, complained because they saw patients of mine and the patients hadn't suffered, but one said she used hydroxychloroquine on this patient. And the other said she used ivermectin and it's horse paste and that's terrible. You know, she's a quack. So, then so it wasn't the patients who complained. It was another healthcare provider. Not a single one of my patients complained. In fact, I have no patient complaints. Um, I've never had a malpractice case. I mean, my patients like me. Um, and so this is basically a con- this is like a witch hunt by other medical professionals, despite the fact I've been, you know, propagandized to do this. And that's told, the weirdest, creepiest thing see, about this, I mean, right? The nurse practitioner even wrote, you know, well, we're supposed to, if we see something, we're supposed to say something. Mm. That's so it's creepy. It's very Soviet, yeah. It's very, yeah. yes, yeah, Soviet, like Nazi Germany. Basically, there's the the yeah, informing Nazi. on your Can't fellow. Can't trust your neighbors kind of thing. Yeah. That's, really that's kind of the creep. That's the craziest thing about this for me is just the, the willingness uh, of the public to to jump on the bandwagon and police these things and people really loving the opportunity to tell other people that they're wrong, you know, and we've been really trying to figure out a way to talk about this that doesn't take the responsibility off of whoever's pulling the strings on the top, because you want to be able to talk about this bottom up way that control happens, which is that when somebody in a white coat tells you to do something, everybody rushes to do it without thinking of the fact that, well, maybe the guy in the white coat is wrong. And we know that from Milgram's experiments that there's something like 60% of the people in the population under specific conditions are very agentic. If somebody tells them to do something, they'll do it. And so there's this weird thing where you just give a little impulse from the top and then everybody just falls into position and plays their role of enforcer and tattler and and busybody but you can't but unless you punish people like me you won't be able to get all the doctors to step in line so you have Mm. to make examples Yeah, this is from the ASH experiment, right? Which is the the experiment where there's a room full of people that are are plants and then there's one guy and somebody's asking for the answer to a question and all the plants give the wrong answer. And as long as you have consensus in the room, the experimental subject will also give the wrong answer some percentage of the time. But if you have at least one dissenting voice, then it falls apart. Yeah, exactly. But doctors in particular... <clears throat> you need to let them know that if they don't go along, they could lose their medical license because that's the worst thing you could ever do to a doctor. It's and that's what they did to you. Years of training, and now, and most most of us like the job, you know. And now you can never do it again. Your whole career is over. You've got to start, you know, packing groceries or something. And and that's what ultimately happened happened to you, as I understand it. Was there so my my license is suspended, so mm-hmm. I haven't lost it yet. Mm-hmm. But I have to go through legal procedures to um, clear my name, as it were. Was there like some warning, or <clears throat> did they give you? Were well, they like so that? So they the warning was that 
that I got subpoenaed for records from the patients. And, and then it was not just this one informant, but another person, two straight, they're strangers. I, I don't never met them, but they're both from Maine and they complained. We saw her misinforming on the internet. <laughs> we saw wow. her, and it was misinformation. So we're reporting it to the board. Now, if, if at least one of those, so I, I, I've had one board complaint in 41 years. Now, suddenly in the space of two months or October to December, I've got four board complaints. So, you know, was that, was somebody incentivized to complain? <laughs> I mean, I think that people are incentivized by feeling like they're doing the right thing, right? I, I just, I'm thinking, I think back to the beginning of the pandemic where there was this moment where it was, you know, flatten the curve. And I remember for those two weeks being like, okay, this seems like a reasonable thing to do. And Absolutely. then I started, and then there's this, there's this gradual creep where like two more weeks and how about two months and you're just kind of like wait a second what? And, and people peel off from that right and so there's there's a narrative of this is the right thing to do and you do the right thing at first and then slowly you start to realize that well hey hey hold on wait a second like who decided on the right thing and which direction that we're going and and people start to question the official narrative but there's some people that are ride or die if somebody from the top is telling me to do it i'm gonna do it no matter no matter what and so there's an incentive to inform because you, if, if your career depends on demonstrating your loyalty to the central system, then you have absolutely no choice but to inform since you have sunk costs. You've maybe spent 10 years in the nursing profession or that you're a physician. And so if you, don't, if you go against it and, and your license is revoked, well, that's you have to be a very special type of person to do that. Right. And most people aren't capable. Exactly. They're not. And I felt that I, that given my sort of stellar reputation and my age and the fact that I didn't need to practice, if, if my license did get taken away completely, I didn't financially need, I don't have a family to support anymore. Um, I, I felt like I needed to step up to the plate and be willing to, to challenge this. I mean, it costs a lot of, it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to get the legal assistance to challenge the board. And mm. so very few people, you know, can do that. Um, I, I, I mean, it's not, I don't have the money. Children's Health Defense is helping me to pay for my legal expenses. So that's how I'm doing it. But, um, you know, it's even possible that I'll wind up defending myself in court. That because I know more about the subject than, than all the lawyers. Yeah. So, I, it's, see, I have a child who's a doctor and, and my child, um, you know, is not in a position to challenge this. And I feel I'm doing it for my child and for everybody else out there. I mean, this is real. I mean, when you look at it carefully, you realize this is about autonomy of patients to get the treatment they choose. If we let this go forward and we let the federal government tell you, if you get this disease, this is going to be your treatment. And if you get that disease, you're going to get this. And you can't come to the, you know, you can't see a doctor unless your lips turn blue. This is what, you know, if we've allowed this, we're, this is what we're going to sow, you know? I mean, it, ha it has no chance of self-correcting. Sorry, yeah. what? 
Uh, I'm just saying it just has no chance of self-correcting. That's the main problem that's with right. this this that's modality right. is it do, it's not open to progress. And that's just totally anti-American, totally anti-democratic, totally anti-rationalist, anti-enlightenment. It's literally the worst idea since genocide that I can think of. I mean, it's and just... Patients are dying at home because they're so frightened they'll go to the hospital and get remdesivir, um, you know, which has this moniker run death is near <laughs> so uh, is it because it's so hard on the kidneys or what it i mean it's really not killing that many people but um it can kill you and it doesn't help because it's an antiviral and it's given too late mm. um, so now they're talking about maybe trying to give it as an outpatient in an infusion instead of the monoclonal antibodies because they don't work against the omicron variants um, so that may happen, and then we'll find out whether it works early, but we know it doesn't work late. It shouldn't be used. It makes no sense, just like the suppression of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin make no logical sense. There is some other you know, entity making these decisions, and then the federal government is providing financial incentives to the entire healthcare industry to, to follow these directives, even though they don't make sense. And the hospital presidents are not willing to, to give up the money. And where do you think this goes next? We have to fight back. I mean, if we don't fight back, that's it. You know, we've, we've lost all our freedom. Um, if, if we have to show papers to get into a restaurant, you know, that's the end. If you have to carry around a vaccine passport or any other kind of document in order to live your life, you know, you, you've already surrendered to officialdom, whatever. And we don't know who's running officialdom. That's the main why, problem. Why is the same thing going on in all these European countries and in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, as here, in fact, worse in most of them than what we have here. Who's running the show? We don't know. Exactly. Where is it going? What's it about? What's the end game? We don't know any of that. And I mean, I think that that's our task as people who produce media is to figure it out and to look at it from as many different angles as possible. Like our our bread and butter is normally theories of nature, right? We have people on to talk about kind of esoteric things about how the earth formed or the age of the universe. And it's these things that I really love to talk about, but they're not related to the actual physical reality on the ground. And we've had, it's been hard to find the narrative ground to stand on to talk about COVID because it's so heated and so, so controlled. But I think that it's imperative that people do start to talk about it, not in this way that argues over, you know, I hear people arguing about whether or not viruses even exist, about, <clears throat> you know, the funda the foundations of sequencing. it's a distraction. Right? Where I'm like, like look. Right, like this is contagious. But you know, the good the good news is the UK pu just published statistics that seventy percent of England they have estimated is already immune, have already had COVID. Um, and I really, the way I read the tea leaves is that these vaccines uh, are sinking. They cannot support their weight any longer. They don't work. They work for a very few months and then they stop working. And then they take you into negative efficacy territory. Um, the FDA has twice postponed the meeting on uh, authorizing vaccine for the six months to through four years. Um, and 
the head of vaccines at FDA has said, if we get a new type of vaccine for booster, we're not going to continue with the mRNAs or we're not going to continue with these. We're going to get rid of them because it'll be too confusing. And I thought to myself, too confusing. You've got a dose for adults. You've got a dose for, you know, five to 11 year olds. You've got another dose that they're trialing for the uh, six months to up to five years. You're talking about three doses for the little kids, two doses for the bigger kids, you know, Moderna's booster dose is half the size of its initial, but Pfizer's is the same. I mean, it's dreadfully confusing now. And yet he's using the excuse that if we get a different booster, it's going to be too confusing. We'll have, I think they're going to get rid of these. They'll probably try to bring on a new vaccine that will also be untested. So one of the reasons, so the, the federal government and known for quite some time that these vaccines barely and could be and are probably very bad news because of the side effects and because of the negative efficacy over time. Um, and yet they have persisted in, in pushing them. So what is that about? Why do they want us injected? And why did many, I've been told Canada, Australia, I, and I've seen it in the media, EU and the United States have all signed contracts to buy eight to 10 doses per person of the COVID vaccine. So What's that about? Why do they want us to get all these doses, even when they know it doesn't work? So, is there some other? Could it just be about money? No. I mean, could what? it just could it just be about money? Could it just be like puppeting be of the money. government sector by the industrial sector? I think it's also about grinding people down into accepting the narrative. Like, I think that there's. Well, I think that's that's absolutely true. But then you see, billions of dollars have been spent on microelectronics and in, and things that you can inject into people. That the federal, you know, our federal government and the military in particular. God, I saw a terrifying. I saw an absolutely terrifying Vice video, which was uh, one of the reporters had gone to a laboratory where they were doing mind control on a beetle. And basically they had connected electrodes to this beetle's brain and they were talking about how they could give an electrical pulse to the beetle and they could define how it was going to move and walk. And so you have this beetle that's on its back attached to some, you know, makeshift surgical table. And it's literally as they change the impulses will will perform some kind of rote behavior of a certain type of walk pattern. And the interviewer is clearly kind of freaked out by it. But then he asks them, like, how long will it keep going? Because and they're like, well, you know, it kind of tries to struggle against the instruction, but we've kept it going for, you know, a month straight, no rest as long as you feed it, it'll just keep going. And that's the technology that's being developed in laboratories. And, and so it's it's hard to is, is that in the United States, what we the technology that we learn about is usually ten to twenty years behind. But what what the military has actually done with classified experiments, so we have no idea where the research really is right now. And we absolutely know, because this is being said out loud, that the people who are in charge believe that what is necessary is a universal narrative that everyone subscribes to, because that is what creates a cohesive social system. And so... also justify this checkpoint society, too, right? Where you have uh, sort of pretext for stopping people you know, funnel, you know, really controlling the motion of people between different places. And it's in some sense ideal for people who are looking to police or looking to 
Looking to have order because you the government is directly threatened by a populace that doesn't agree with what the government is doing. You know, I saw I saw videos of the trucker convoy in Canada, and there's the parliament building. It's got a huge fence around it, and there's just a sea of people at the gates. And I can't, you know, it makes me think of the the 18th or the the French monarchs. With, with the crowds of people at their door knowing what's coming for them and doing everything that they can to stop it because there's this tide of people that are angry and that have been left in the dust of this, you know, financial revolution and they're poor and they're hungry and they're, they're, they're angry. And to see that happening in the modern day and to know that those people are sitting inside that building and looking out at that crowd, I can imagine that their their actions are not going to want to appease and to ease the divisions and to grant people these things. They respond with force because that's what governments do. Governments have a hand of 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 dealing with things, and it is a forceful hand. Um, I think that's absolutely true. I think that also one potential solution for governments, apparently, I haven't studied this um, much, but I've spoken with people who have, is that the international health regulations that were adopted by the WHO in 2005 um, sort of allow for WHO to take over management of pandemics internationally. And the United States has put forward just in the last few weeks some amendments to that. And there is also some sort of WHO treaty coming up that will, people's claim, uh, will cement these regulations so that once a pandemic is designated, and as we know from the 2009 swine flu pandemic, that WHO changed its designations for what constituted different pandemic levels, um, and they made it so loose that a, a new cold would meet the definition of pandemic so anyway, you know, they took off uh, death and destruction out of out of the definition, and for the level that would trigger contracts for vaccines, um, that's what happened in two thousand nine. So it it may so the what I'm saying, I guess, is that the WHO has not shown itself to be a a truthful and honest broker in this arena. It hasn't made in general good recommendations for the conduct of this pandemic. And um, people should be aware that there may well be efforts afoot to use future pandemics or even some new Omicron version as a way for you know, worldwide uh, sovereignty to shift to the WHO. And that, you know, I think most people would not be happy with that, but it could happen without them even knowing it because of a bunch of, you know, bureaucrat diplomats meeting in Geneva. And so it's something we have to watch for. I mean, if we're going through another cycle of this, it seems like now is an, is is a perfect time for the next cycle to start because it seems like we're back in March of 2020 with China starting to shut down the Shanghai lockdowns are now expanding. They're starting to do testing in Beijing. And so if China goes into full lockdown again, then you can imagine that it's just going to be a replay of what happened the last time. Right. So my question is, what are they locking down for? I mean, is it to maintain zero that we've had that have spread here? I mean, 
some countries like Australia and New Zealand have recently had very, very bad, you know, pandemic because they had blocked it out for so long. So they had a population that was un, you know, scathed that had no immunity. And China's probably the same. However, the Omicron is not that severe. And China makes most of the hydroxychloroquine and can certainly make ivermectin. These are non, these are generic. They're not patented drugs. Any manufacturer can make them and it's very cheap to make both of them. China has a huge drug industry. They make most of the drugs that we take here. Um, so why aren't they simply using their drugs and taking care of their population? Why are they locking them down? What is that really about? Well, I think that it's popular. I mean, I, I, this sounds crazy to be so certain about it when I say it, but it's it's control. I think that people are there. There's a huge wealth disparity in the world. People are pessimistic, anxious about the future. They feel like something that was promised to them has been stolen from them. And this is, you talk to people from all kinds of different countries and all kinds of different backgrounds, and this is a universal sense. Unless you occupy an upper echelon of society where you have a really good job and you're, you're, you're doing well so you can buy your toys and you feel secure and you don't have to worry about money, then it starts to kind of close in on you the 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 futility of your situation and the futility of your situation wants makes you want excuse me makes you want to attack your government and so the government needs to figure out a way to prevent that from happening at all costs because that means if if you assume that the government is a self-perpetuating machine it is a program that runs it's like a piece of software that software has a driving directive, which is to continue to survive in its current form. And so whatever corruptions it has, it will continue to propagate forward policies that further cement the corruptions that have accumulated in the system. Mm -hmm. And so yes. control seems like the most conspiratorial, but also the most obvious way of looking at this because people are very unhappy. But China already has the social credit score. I mean, China already has a tremendous amount. I mean, you're you're mixing two countries together. So the government here is definitely probably frightened of the people because there must be a tremendous amount of simmering anger. Here. I think there's a lot of simmering anger in China as well, and I think that she's but grasp on it is tenuous. Anger, but because they can surveil people so well, they know who's got the anger. They know who they can, you know, go out and arrest or put in a detention camp or whatever they do. Um, you know. I, I'm told, you know, if you're if you're fighting them, your children don't get to go to the good schools. You don't get the good job. I mean, they have a powerful method already of controlling all that. What more do they need? Well, on one hand, it seems like the rest of the world follows suit with China to some extent. We were watching this like flash map the other day of the lockdowns as they spread across the world in these waves. And, you know, I hate to say it, but the U.S. and Europe and Canada were like, seemed like they were right there with China blinking on and off with their degrees of lockdown. And so I wonder if there isn't just uh, some aspect of, uh, some inductive aspect uh, of the Chinese program as well, where, you know, if they signal danger, the rest of the world will follow suit to some extent. I also think that in China as well, there are more people accumulating who, like in every country, who aren't getting married and aren't having children. And a generation of people that aren't married and don't have families to worry about is a generation of people who you have a harder time controlling. They're much more dangerous because there's much less for them to protect. 
Yeah, but you can starve them to death by not giving them a job, too. But they don't care about starving their people to death. This is like in the history of China. That's what they do. That's what I mean. That they. That's exactly what I mean. If you prevent them from getting a job, you you have control. You've effectively controlled them. Um, I, I mean, they just have you know so many more levers to use than we do. So I, you know, I think I do think that there's something nefarious about the Chinese lockdowns because I don't see that they need them. You know, we're two years into this. We know lockdown. We've already proved lockdowns don't work. You get it now or you get it later. You know, unless they have some new plague that we're not aware of that doesn't respond to the drugs that we think it responds to, that doesn't, you know, behave the way we think. There's, I mean, it's you're going to get it now or you're going to get it later. Which do you pick? Your economy will not go to rack and ruin if you just let everybody get it now. Furthermore, the seroprevalence is creeping way up above the majorities, and it just seems right. obvious I that most here, people here in the U.S. Uh, you know, I mean, that's what Omicron did for us. Is it affected probably at least fifty percent of the population? So it gave us an enormous amount of population immunity without a lot of pain. I mean, so we, I, so we haven't figured out China. Yeah, we have not. But that that's good. That leaves us something to talk about in the future. <laughs> we can't figure everything out in a single conversation. Um, Dr. Nass, uh, we've taken we've taken a lot of your time and it has been it has been wonderful to hear your perspective and to hear your story and to get a sense of the entire arc. Uh, we would we would love to have you back again to talk about you know new developments and because I don't think that this is going away and you've you're somebody who has demonstrated both on your Substack and on your blog that y- you pay an extraordinary amount of attention to this you are careful in your analysis you are sitting through the the boring things that other people don't have time for or don't have the will for and and reporting it's it's truly it is it is peak investigative journalism and now you're fighting in the in the legal system too which is also going to be uh really something to that's see that's going to be the tough one yeah that's going to be the tough one cuz it's really a political fight right um, right it, well, you mentioned something before the people enjoy you know ratting out the bad guys and you know the board took extreme pleasure the members of the, I was really surprised because it was the first time they heard about me and they heard a you know warp story and I wasn't allowed to present my own evidence or any I wasn't allowed to speak um and at the end of the meeting they said yep you know psychiatric ex- you know neuropsychological exam um suspender license you know demand she jump through all these hoops and- so they basically called you crazy no, they, uh, uh, sorry, sorry. Well, they, I mean, maybe they did. They had to order the neuropsych exam in order to justify the suspension of my license and sending my name to the National Practitioner Database. And legally, they had to do it. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to give the documents in my case to the media. And since really the purpose of this seems to be to, you know, get a lot of media attention on bad doctors to scare the rest of them. They, they had to do it. They never, they didn't make a single allegation of a cognitive or psychological problem I had. That was you know, the crazy thing because I looked this up and there's like some Medscape page, right? And it lists the, the 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 accusation and then it also links to the actual document of, of the... Oh, I'll the, have to look that up on Medscape. I haven't seen it. Yeah. So, so it, yes. So all these media started, 
repeating, you know, bits from my patient's charts that had been subpoenaed and other things that came from my case. And so I had, you know, I had to have done something really terrible to, to legally justify that. And so they had to say that I was nuts and I was a danger to pay. I was an immediate danger to patients, even though there was not a single patient complaint. So anyway, that that's what I went through. And it's, it's very political. You know, we, we have a, a governor who, who, by the way, I happened to talk to a few weeks ago, who was very rude to me. I don't have to answer your question because of your conduct, Dr. Ness. Oh, no. <laughs> and, um, and then we have somebody running against her who used to be the governor who also knows about my case, you know, and so it's, it's sort of Dem, you know, I've become Dem versus Republican um, poster child. Which is like the saddest way for this to resolve, which is the idea that these two calcified, absurd political entities are representative of the, re- the, the complex and nuanced reality of what it means to be alive and critically thinking in this day and age is, is wild. It's like they don't even have the jurisdiction to, to deal with what we're talking about, which is literally scientific progress and the examination of new ideas. It's like the wrong court for this matter, almost. Yeah. But anyways, I wish you the best of luck with that. I'll be paying attention. And, it's uh, all good. And so people can find you on your Substack, which is uh, Meryl Nass. And then they can also find you at anthraxvaccine.blogspot.com, where you are a magnificently prolific poster. I'm seeing like three, four postings a day, regularly updating on what's going on in the world. And so people should definitely check that out. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Nass. Thank you.